Before we, before we journey together in uh, Acts 17, I just want to say that this whole week, I have, uh, I've, been, I've been trembling at trying to fight for the words for this morning, because I know the city that I live in. I know my neighbors, I know my neighborhood, I know the buildings that exist in this city, and I know the, what we're saying today matters significantly. Um, and I don't know if you're one in this room who would say, I, I don't believe there's only one way. And all I can say is I, I, I do just want to journey alongside you. This morning is not an attempt to belittle any of our friends who have differing faiths than us. This morning's intention is to just talk about Jesus. Where do they stand on Jesus? The things I will tell you this morning are not... Um, looking down on or, or criticizing, I'm just telling you what they say about Jesus. And I'm telling you what we say about Jesus. And so if we could pray together this morning before we venture here, because I know this thought holds a lot of people captive and all it takes is a little bit of peeling back just to look at the foundation that it's built on. And I know what we're afraid of most of is pulling things back and looking at them. And so let's pray. Father, I ask <clears throat> by your grace that the exclusive statements of Jesus would swell our hearts for you, not shrink them. I ask that the exclusive statements that Jesus has made will give us comfort in the way home. I ask that the exclusive statements that Jesus has made will cause us to look at all the other exclusive statements we might believe and question what are they, what are they founded on? And do Jesus' claims hold any sway or weight? And this morning I, I, don't, I know that it's not evidences that draw people to you, it's you that draw people to you. And so I'm, I'm asking that your spirit would work on our hearts this morning, would open our eyes and our ears to hear what you have to say. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm getting a little ringing on the monitors, and I, I, don't, I won't be able to live with that. So, <clears throat> In uh, Acts 17, we find Paul and Silas headed to the city of Thessalonica. Um, it is a, if you want to read kind of more in depth what they shared, you could open First and Second Thessalonians. It's pretty fascinating what they actually share uh, and what the result is. People actually turn from idol worship to the worship of living God, and they actually start to anticipate the return of Christ. Now, Paul actually has to go in on these guys and say, look, yes, Christ is going to return, but that doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. You don't get lazy. You continue living because Jesus is going to return, but there was an anticipation in them. They were believing this message. Now, Thessalonica was a city of about 85,000 people, and Paul typically, um, as he journeyed, would find these bigger cities to go to because cities matter. And I want you to know at Highland, we believe cities matter. And it's not to say that rural areas don't matter, suburban areas don't matter, because they do. But cities in large, by and large, are places where ideas and thoughts are discussed and broken down. 
And if Paul can reach people in these cities, there's lots of traveling and inroads and outroads and people coming in and people going out and taking, it's really like this vein. And, and every time I run over 240 uh, when I'm on Haywood, like I just see roads coming in and roads going out. And I'm like, man, what if the gospel, it was people coming into the city and an idea was being discussed and Jesus got thrown into the conversation and people were going back out of the city going, I encountered somebody and they were talking about Jesus and it's crazy. It's this crazy idea that this dude raised from the dead and he saves people and I don't get it. But but we love cities. And here at Highland, we know that there are many ideas and thoughts that are addressed and talked about out in the city. And what we're saying is we just want Jesus to have a place at the table. And as Christ followers, we're the ones who pull up to that table. And now some of you might fear that table. Some of you might fear the conversations that you might have to have. But is he worth it? And I think that's where we're looking this morning. And so Paul, journeying to Thessalonica, he does what he does. And you can read in Acts 17, starting in verse 2. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service. And for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Now, Paul's life is one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection of Christ. A man who kills Christians, transformed to the man who would take the gospel farther than, the world, than anyone else in the world. But Paul didn't go, hey, look at my life. Paul didn't go, hey, look at the miracles that, that Jesus has done and look at the things that I've done in history. He didn't use any of those things in this moment. He said, I want to show you these evidences from the text that you guys claim to believe. And so he's talking to Jewish people in these synagogues. And so he breaks these things down that the scriptures point to Jesus. Jesus actually says that in Luke chapter 24. You can read it for yourself. He's talking with some of the disciples. And he's like, everybody's looking for all this stuff, but everyone has missed the fact that all the scriptures point to me. You've forgotten that. And so Paul does that reasonably with these people sitting in the synagogue. And now the result is some of these people believing... And some of these people are furious. And I love the description that these people who are furious about Paul and Silas give. They basically say, these guys who are turning the world upside down have come to our town and they are messing things up. And so you have Jewish leaders who are afraid they're going to lose influence. You have businessmen who have lost profits because Paul and Silas' activity have, have freed demon-possessed little girls who read fortunes and, and their fortune is no longer going to be theirs and, and freedom is coming to all of these people and they're just going, the world is turning upside down and he's doing it here. Let's get them. And so they run after and try and get them, but Paul and Silas scoot. They get out of town. And then they head to the, the city of Berea. And many of you know about the Bereans. They, they say, Christians say, be a Berean. And Bereans were the ones who were eagerly anticipating hearing this message of the gospel. They weren't like these, these people who are, no, no, no. But they were like, what, if this is true, we want to know. And so Paul shares with them from the scriptures and they don't just go, you know what, we'll take your word for it. They actually go, let's look in the scripture. Not from this cynical, skeptical point of view, but from this, if this is true, then I want to see it. And I want to know if it's true. And so they see it and some become believers. But it's funny because there were some troublemakers from Thessalonica that follow them the 50 plus miles to Berea to go, let's get them, these troublemakers, get them. And they try and get them. And actually, Paul scoots out of town and... Uh, Timothy and Silas hang out, and Paul goes to wait in Athens. It's amazing to me, and I, just reading through it this first time, 
Paul's, this, this encounter that he has in Acts 17 is him waiting around. But Paul doesn't waste his waiting. Paul does what Paul does all the time. And so secular writers write about Athens, and, and, and what is known of Athens is that any time a stranger or foreign god might have been introduced to them, they'd build an altar and a temple to it. They actually had more idols in Athens than all of Greece combined. Two times the religious festivals were celebrated in Athens as opposed to every other place in the country. It's said of them that they had as many gods as men in their city. Uh, one historian wrote that pagan priests would actually release sheep into the city. Just release sheep to walk up and down the, hill, the streets of the city. And as those sheep were walking around, the priests would follow them. And if that sheep laid down somewhere, those priests assumed there was a god that wanted to be worshipped right there. And so they would slaughter that sheep where it laid down. Poor guy, man. Just wanted a nap. And now I'm dead. <sighs> How does that happen? Uh, don't, don't lay down, Bob! Don't lay down! I mean, it's just one of those moments where you're just like, really? I laid down? But they were, it, was a, it was a very well-known religious, philosophical literature. All of the center in Athens and conversation was always going on about these things. And Paul wasn't taking note of something, and you'll see in just a second. He wasn't just taking note that he was upset by all the idols. It says that he was troubled by them. And you can read in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he, wait, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Paul looks around and he sees all of these idols, and not in this angry way, but this, this I know God. And I know the dangers of worshiping idols, and I know how deadly it can be. And these people are throwing themselves, hurting themselves, th uh, you know, giving everything of themselves to these man-made idols. And so Paul is stirred to say, I have got to say something. I'm here waiting. I'm not going to waste it while I'm here. And he looks for a way to build bridges. In verse uh, 18 of chapter 17, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things and we want to know what it's about. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Now I want to speak to this just for a moment. There are groups of people and websites completely dedicated to saying that Jesus is a copycat uh, story, when in fact it is not. And I want you to know that. I want you to know that not everything on the internet is true. I know, some of you are like, what? I thought there was somebody who gets everything that's uploaded on the internet and then they read it and do the fact check. No. I want you to know that had Jesus' story been a copycat story, these men would have said, heard it before. We've known this stuff. This is not new. This is a, this, oh, we know about Horace and we know about all these other things. Guys, it just takes a little bit of digging and you begin to find out how amazing the story of Jesus really is. 
And so these men would have said, nope, Paul, heard it. Nope, nope, don't talk anymore. This is old school. Paul gets front and center attention because of this new teaching about Jesus as the Messiah. And so for two weeks, um, we've been looking at some of these common objections to Christianity. We started with, is it about really being sincere or is it about the object of your faith that matters most? Is it about being genuine in your belief or is it about the object that you're actually putting all of your faith in? Last week, Wes carefully and tenderly talked about suffering and the existence of suffering, but still trying to say that there is a God and and how we wrestle with those things. If there is a good God, why is there still evil? And why is there all of these things happening in life? And so I want to encourage you, if you're wrestling with those questions, go online and you can listen to those things. And I told you the reason we're doing I Can't Even is because there are groups of people that sit together who have questions, and then there are those of us who, who sit and we have questions, but we do, there is faith. And so the point of this whole series is to be able to wrestle with these questions, but to also build this foundation that allows you as the Christ follower and me as the Christ follower to go, this is why the gospel has to go out. This is why it matters that we are a people who share what we have seen and heard. That's what it means to be a witness is what I have experienced is I have royally made things a mess of my life, but Christ in his power and his grace and his mercy has welcomed me home, not with a a ruler, but with his hands spread wide open to, to say, come home. I'm the way. And this is the strange mystery of the gospel that has been announced in the scripture. And as Christ followers, these little tendencies in our hearts to just ever so subtly believe these objections will freeze us, will freeze us up from seeing other people as needing to hear the announcement of what Christ has done on their behalf. This Sunday, we're looking at the idea that many object to the Christian message, and it may sound like this, Christianity isn't unique. It may sound like this, Christianity is no better or more believable or beneficial than any other religion. Uh, Spreading your faith is wrong. It shouldn't be done. Just leave people alone. We all come through different paths and end up in the same place. There can't just be one way. Rabbi Zacharias, um, uh, and if you don't read his stuff, as far as an apologist goes, someone who defends the faith, I would encourage you He says it this way, society's rules are not hard to figure out. Philosophically, you can believe anything so long as you don't claim it's true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you don't claim it's a better way. And religiously, you can hold to anything so long as you don't mention Jesus Christ. Those of you that have been in the forum of sharing your faith, you have experienced that. Those of you who have never shared your faith, you don't know what that's like yet. I pray that you will. I do. I pray that you'll know what it's like for someone to throw Jesus back in your face. It's hard. It hurts. And it's the people that we are meant to go after are the ones who are hard and want to hurt. I get a clearer picture of the gospel going after somebody who wants to reject me than I do with a cup of coffee and a notebook and a pen all day long. Because that's my heart. My heart is hard. It took much for Christ to pursue me. And it is in that same pursuit we run after others, regardless of how they treat you. If if you've been in Asheville long, uh, it didn't take long for this city to um, jump on the bumper sticker craze 
of the coexist sticker. Uh, you've seen it laying around. You've seen it everywhere. You may have it on your car. And uh, here's the thing. Uh, Urban Dictionary, the trusted source, uh, says it this way. <laughs> coexist is a campaign mainly selling shirts and bumper stickers. I love that that's in their definition. Promoting the end of discrimination against all religions as well as discrimination. For Jews, Buddhists, Christians, atheists, blacks, whites, homosexuals, everyone to get along, to coexist. Uh, Google Dictionary puts it this way. To exist together. To exist in mutual tolerance despite different ideologies or interests. Christ followers, you and I should say yay on that. You know that? Like you and I can exist in a society where people have differing views. Now, uh, a secular mindset says we can't. We've seen that in the last week and a half. You don't just have a different opinion. You are an enemy because people have these ideologies that they grip onto. And you don't just have a differing opinion. You are the bad guy if you view things wrong or not as I do. And see, in the Christ followers world, you and I we should be the most peaceable and peacemaking people among this group. Coexisting is what the gospel has done. I mean, it's been cr crushed and persecuted and Christ followers have stood and said, we still love Christ. He's still our Lord. We've still interacted with people who do not believe as we do. We still love alongside people who do not believe as we do. So when we see coexist, to exist in the same space together with differing ideologies, we should be like, yes, we can do that. We share common views on mercy and, and, and justice, and we get, we, get, we get upset when we see indifference in the world, and there's other things that we share in common with so many faiths. It's ridiculous. But yet all we want to do is find how different we are. And that's what builds the walls and doesn't allow us to coexist as Christ followers. We should be the most peaceable, peacemaking people in this circle. The walls that we naturally build up have been torn down because of what Christ has done. Now, where Christ followers cannot agree and should not be agreeable on is when coexisting is not simply being defined as living next to someone and getting along with people, but when coexist suggests that all religions are equally true. Where a Christ follower must not allow themselves to say yay is when we let this coexist mentality move from just existing with people to being all religious thought, eh, it teaches the same thing. Because the truth is, they do not. And we live in a day and an age where teachers Teachers say these things, social media suggests these things, movie stars suggest these things, and we simply nod in agreement because, I mean, hey, they starred in one of my favorite movies, so they probably know everything, right? <laughs> Come on, guys. Social pluralism is an idea that exists that all religious traditions and beliefs should be allowed to share the same uh, space. It's diversity in society. And as Christ followers, yes. But when literal pluralism begins to creep its way in, that all religious thought essentially teaches the same thing, Christ followers have to go, no, I don't believe what they believe. We don't believe the same thing. And I can't say that they're all equally true.
There's a danger in the church for us as Christ followers if we adopt this view simply because the desire to share Christ, the being compelled to share Christ, will not happen. Christ followers will reject the call to make disciples if we believe they are all equally true. Christ followers will no longer make the announcement that every human heart was meant to hear, and that is there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved, Jesus. Like, Christ followers will not advance the gospel if we adhere or believe these, everything is the same. Because if it's all the same, it doesn't really matter. And as Christ followers, you and I are burdened for people to know these things. If I walk with, there's no, they're, they're all the same, why pray for people? It's probably why the church doesn't pray as much as she should, because we're not convinced Jesus is the only way. So we won't pray for people to know Christ. We won't look for moments to share Christ. We won't want to be in the life of people who don't know Christ. Can you see the problem of us adopting a pluralistic view that they all teach the same thing. In a pluralistic society, the major concern isn't about what somebody believes. The major concern comes when we might suggest, why do you believe that? Because when you ask somebody why they believe something, you're getting beneath surface. I think we're really quick to be fascinated by what everybody believes. Oh, it's really cool, man. It's really cool. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. I mean, Eastern religions, you talk about for Asheville, Asheville is obsessed with Eastern religions and just how beautiful it is and how peaceable it is and all of these things. But no one asks why. No one asks, what about truth? And is there truth? Are there things that are true? Are there things that are knowable? Can we walk with these things or are we letting the feelings that we have drive? You know we live in a pluralistic mentality when we are more concerned about how we feel about something than whether or not something is true or not. We are in danger. We are in danger. Now I could say this though, I do wanna say this. Christ followers for years have been bad at sharing the gospel. They've been rude, they've been ugly, they haven't really cared about relationship, they've stood on street corners, they bought billboards. Um, and so I'll tell you, my natural tendency is to so badly not want to be associated with a certain group. And I don't want to be thought of that way. But let's be honest. Do I really share with him? That's what happens, right? I don't want to be associated with those people or one of those. I don't want to be associated to this group, so I don't want to say anything. But if I do, I might. Well, let's just be honest, we don't. And I know I fight it in my heart to, in a way, just, but I'm not like that. Or Jesus is, 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 is different, and I want people to know those things. But because I'm so afraid of being associated with a certain group of people, do I really share the gospel? All religions are not the same. And here's what matters even more. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. And for those of you who are always concerned about offending people, it's offensive to many religions to be thrown into the category that they all teach the same thing. It's offensive 
I think we're so concerned about other people's feelings and stepping on toes that we just don't even think about what we're saying when we suggest they all teach the same thing. Uh, there's an episode, um, uh, I, I grew up watching Malcolm in the Middle. I loved that show. Uh, it was so good. But early in my Christian walk, I wrestled with a lot of these things. Like, aren't they all the same? And uh, there was an episode, and it's fascinating to me how even our culture can point to and reach to these things. And so Malcolm does something, uh, and he's really dealing with the guilt, and he decides to go the religious path. And they just captured it beautifully in this, in this scene. And then I found out that he was only seven. I didn't know what to do. I just felt like I had to talk to someone. I hope I'm doing this right. See, my family, we're not like regular churchgoers, but I know places like this are supposed to help you feel better, and that's really what I need. I did something terrible, and now I just feel like there's something wrong with me. I mean, really wrong, deep inside. I can't shake it. What do I do? Look to the church. Look to God. Look within. But first, you must ask forgiveness. First, you must atone. First, you must cleanse your spirit. The path to salvation. The path to temptation. The path to meditation. How does one define a sin? Well, it's mostly common sense. Then you have to light incense. If you practice abstinence. It's whatever space you're in. Huh? Charity. Prosperity. Declarity. Divine. Restitution. Absolution. Contribution. Palestine. Sacramental. Accident. Mostly mental. You'll be fine. Transubstantial. Alleviate. Who knows? Align your spine. Uh, well, thanks. I feel much better. Bye. It's kind of where we find ourselves, and this was, this was in the 90s, I think, you know? But it's amazing to me that even a culture can begin to understand there are differences. And uh, in the film world, I remember when the iPhone 4 came out, and I know you're like, what, we're in the 7, how old are you? Uh, whatever. Uh, when the iPhone 4 came out, it was a big deal to a lot of filmmakers because we were like, man, we heard of the capabilities of this camera. And in the film world, you're like, dude, if a new camera comes out, what do we want to see? We want to see side by sides. We want to see comparisons to what we know and what, we, what is new. And so um, there's this comparison slide. And, and you can see subtle differences. You can throw it up there. Uh, the iPhone 4, the Canon 7D. And so these are cameras that people were trusting and loving using. But what filmmakers do is they go, I want to compare. I want to see side by side. I want to know what does it look like? What are the differences? Is it worth my investment? All of these different questions get answered when you set something side by side. Now in the philosophy world, there is a law of non-contradiction and it's a simple law and you're all going to be philosophers when you walk out of here. And it's so simple. It's A cannot equal non-A. Say that with me. A cannot equal non-A. Now, it's a very clear picture. Let me show you a couple of slides very quickly. Um, in, in the religious world, you have some that suggest there is no God. You have some that suggest there is one God. You have some that suggest there are many gods. The law of non-contradiction suggests that not all of these can be true. They can all be false, but they cannot all be true at the same time. So if there is only one God, then that means it can't be no God, it can't be many gods. If there are many gods, it can't just be there's one God, it can't be there's no God. And if there is no God, then there can't be one God or many gods. So what they're saying is these things cannot be true at the same time. They could all be false, but they cannot all be true at the same time. Look at this salvation. Some of our friends' uh, views on salvation. There is no salvation, okay? There's nothing to be saved for or from. Salvation by works or salvation by grace. 
See, they can't all be true at the same time. They could all be false, but they cannot all be true at the same time. Now, if there is a contradicting statement, this is where we have to begin to side by side. This is where we begin to compare. This is where we begin to dig. And for the human heart, I do believe Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when you live in a touchy-feely society, sometimes the mind goes, whoop. But what if we truly chose to love God with all of our brain, with everything in us? What if we allowed him access to our brain, to our intellect, and he allowed us to see clearly what truth looks like? Paul does this in Athens. And let's see how he shares this. In verse 22, So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on it, To the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. Athens was so good at covering all their bases, they made an altar to the one. We may be wrong in all of these, but we got this one over here. <laughs> this one right here. It might be right, you know. And he doesn't start with, people of Athens, you are a bunch of dum-dums. He actually admires their heart longings. He actually admires their devotion. He actually admires these things. And he says, God has actually told us more about himself so that we aren't guessing. He actually has revealed to us who he is. And in revealing who he is, we know who we are. And even our modern day artists, musicians, writers, poets, Writers of all of these things, they write about longings for life, forgiveness, wholeness, home, acceptance, approval, relationship. In fact, most of all that you and I do points to directly meeting a need in one of those areas. We were made for him. And so instead of saying you're crazy for trying to find acceptance with people that you're journeying with, maybe you say we were made for those things. Jesus, as God, as Savior, has come and pointed us to himself. He is what we've longed for. Listen to Paul as he continues in verse 24. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in a man-made temple, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand where they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Though he is not far away from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or from silver or stone. Paul starts with God, and he's trying to help them see that God is all-powerful. He has no needs, and this was very different in the Roman and Greek gods. They were very needy and very clingy, and the reason they would cause disasters on the earth is because they needed people to cry out, to worship to them, so that they would still exist. The gods were equally needy of the people as the people were needy of the gods, and so Paul is saying, look, that is not how God works. 
God is all powerful. He has no needs. He does not need to be served. Nothing we do determines whether he exists or not. He is God. But then this all powerful God is personal caring to, down to the last breath of every human being. He's aware of it, causing it. And that he has actually satisfied every need. And that God actually works events and times and places so that we would cry out to him. That we would find him though he is not far from any one of us. This is why I don't use the phrase, we're working in a city with people who are far from God. I don't like using that phrase in particular, simply because I always know he's right there. And he's at work. And I know he's moving and living among and out, and he's at work. And so when Christ followers say, God is far from somebody, we're suggesting he's not at work in their life. And we don't even know that to be true. What we do know is we see a God who is constantly orchestrating times and places and events so that people would cry out to him. You remember when he found you. Many of you do. You remember when God orchestrated times and places and people and events and you came to see Christ as the Savior, not just as some good guy or a teacher or philosopher, but as Savior and the one who made forgiveness of sin possible and a home with God possible and all these things possible and it's not done by works, but by faith. You remember when he orchestrated those things so that you would cry out to him. You know, and it seems after the fact, but Paul says in light of all of these things, Paul says, hey, you know what? It doesn't really make sense for you guys, and I'm sure Paul would have used Legos if he was using an illustration with them, but it doesn't really make sense. Oh, see, I'm, I'm building this thing, and now as I'm building my, my little Lego thing, uh, that looks good, cool, awesome, all right. But you know, sometimes we don't think about that. Sometimes we don't think that the idol that we have built, we worship, and God's like, that don't make no sense. Because you know what happens to your idol? You accidentally bump it. <clears throat> well, let's build another one. Paul says, this is not how God is. That he is all powerful. And then it doesn't really make sense for us to worship idols that we have built with our own hands. And he continues, and he brings it to Christ. Acts 17, verse 30. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Paul turns everything to Jesus. He keeps it about Jesus. Everything you and I believe hinges on the person and work of Jesus. Going back to the law of non-contradiction, A cannot equal non-A. Let's just see what everybody else says about Jesus. Jesus is God. Or Jesus is not God. 
This is not intended to belittle or, or look down upon. This simply teaches what everyone else teaches about Jesus and what Christ's followers believe about Jesus. One of these is true, or they could both be false, but they can't both be true. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 8. I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was even born, I am. At that, they, that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Why would they want to pick up a stone and kill him? Because Jesus was saying, he is God. I am the statement that was made by God at the burning bush to Moses. That's who you tell Israel sent you. I am. I have no maker. I have no beginning or end. I am that I am. And Jesus said, I am. In John chapter 10, Jesus said this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. A crazy man makes this statement if he is not God. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He is a bad person if he said this about himself. He does not give us the freedom to put him in the line of a good philosopher or a good teacher or a good guy. He is a liar or a crazy person if he is not who he says he is. John 14, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. The apostles declared that, God was save, that Jesus was God and Savior. The demons declared that he was God and Savior, not out of faith, but out of fact. And even his enemies, they said what Jesus said of himself. And when your enemies get your story straight, you're doing something right. Jesus is announcing that he is the door almost enter through, or the gate almost enter through, or the living water that you must drink of, or the way. It is very exclusive. You'd be right in saying that it is, but Jesus didn't come saying, I'm an option. He said, look to me. For those of you struggling with the exclusive claims of Jesus, every worldview has its exclusive statements. Meaning, every worldview requires people follow what it says to be right and true. That includes anyone who says, you must be open to anything. That is an exclusive statement because it means you must be open to anything I agree with or anything I disagree with. <laughs> and I don't think sometimes we consider that. Only Jesus makes exclusive statements. No. <laughs> We all make exclusive statements. There can't just be one way. Exclusive statement. So you should not be shocked that there are exclusive statements in this world. The question becomes, do you pull, pull back the layers and find out what is substantiated and what is not? Jesus made some highly exclusive claims about himself. Hindus have always challenged the way that there is one way to God. Jesus said he was the life. Buddhists would either suggest God doesn't matter in this life, and some sects of Buddhism say that God doesn't even exist. Muslims don't believe that Jesus would be the way to God because they don't believe God would have a son, and they don't believe God would die. They don't believe in the Trinity. Jesus says we can know God. 
Agnostics suggest we can't really be sure, but they're open for the conversation. Every worldview comes with its own set of exclusive claims. And as the band comes, we close this morning. The question then must turn to, why do I believe these claims to be true? Why do I believe these claims to be true? And what supports my statement? But in Jesus' exclusive statements, he did not keep it a secret. Jesus announced to the world that they, look, they need to look no further for rescue. It's as if there are three doors and there's a game show going on and behind one of those doors is the prize and behind two of those doors is complete and total humiliation. A punching glove shoots out the door or a pie in the face or, or a brick wall or nothing. And it's as if the game show host opens the door and says, look, just come through this way. Let me, let me spare you these two doors. Don't look to these two doors. These two doors, they're going to leave you bruised. They're going to leave you broken. They're going to leave you messed up. Just come through this door. And it's shocking to me sometimes that we look at Jesus and we go, you know what? No. You and I, because of our hard hearts, we would look at those three doors knowing that someone has said, hey, come in this way, and we would try the other doors. That's what we do. That's what sin does. It suggests, hey, that person doesn't know what they're talking about. I'm going to go the other doors. And Jesus is consistently saying, I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way. Come through me. And the beliefs that are found in Christianity are not pulled out of thin air. There are strong evidences for the Christian faith, and I don't have time to go into all of those. There are people who are much smarter than I who have written all over these details and these things. There's the bibliographical test of the scripture. Can I know that the book that houses all these letters in the New Testament, can I know that what the author intended to, to write, I actually hold in my hands? And the answer is overwhelmingly, yes, we can. You just do textual criticism for two seconds. And you know that you can trust the text that you're holding in your hand. The internal evidence of the Bible, its consistency and accuracy and story and all of the things that continue to point to it being true. Does it claim to be a divine book or are Christ followers just making that up? No, it claims. And then there's the external evidences, the archaeological findings, all of these things. You have, you have non-Christian historians writing on the person of Jesus. You have non-Christian historians writing on these little rebels in the Middle East. That they, there was an uprising because of them and their ministry and the life and death of Jesus. Josephus, Tacitus, uh, 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 Thallus, all of these different Roman and Greek historians and Jewish historians writing on the evidence of Jesus. And let's not forget all the strong evidence that would point to the resurrection of Christ. 500 eyewitnesses, more than 500 eyewitnesses. Jesus did not come to throw his hat into the ring as another way. He made very bold claims that he is the way, he is the mystery that God has chosen to reveal. And the mystery of the gospel is that you and I created in the image of God, rejected and ran from him. Sin. And that not even sin is going to stop him from being with the ones that he made. Now something has to change. Something has to be done. 
And instead of you and I paying for the eternal consequence, the eternal consequence of sin, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, all put on Christ. A man who existed in history. Gave up his life, but did not stay dead. Rose from the grave, proving that he is able to do all that he says, namely, the forgiveness of sin. You and I have been invited into that mystery, not by works, but by faith. Do I look on Jesus and believe that he is the hope? He is everything that I have been longing for, the wholeness, the, the acceptance, the approval, the life, everything that I've been looking for is found in the forgiveness of sin in the person of Christ. And this matters. Jesus matters, and regardless of how hard-hearted we think the world is, she's looking for the exact same things we are. Our artists, our musicians, our movie writers, our book writers, all addressing these longings in our heart. And let's just be honest, everything we do, we do because we think it's gonna make us whole. Everything. Everything we do, we do because somehow in us, we think it's gonna make us whole. And Christ is making this declaration from the cross, out of the grave, this is the road home. This is wholeness. And I tell you these things because I don't need a little religion in my life. You don't need some old-time religion to help round you out. You don't need another thing to add to your life. I mean, the world makes you feel guilty enough. Why throw religion into the mix of it? But if it's true, if the gospel is true, then I'll keep telling my kids, I'll keep telling my kids every day that there is no greater thing. If it is true, then I'll continue to stand here Sunday, tell you of the folly of sin and the joy of turning to Christ. And if it is true, then it's worth me hating my sin. It is worth me hating the thing that wants to kill and destroy me. Paul said that God's purpose for the nations was that they seek after him, feeling their way toward him, and that they would find him, because he's not far from any of us. Will you turn from your ways and trust Christ? He's the way home. The way home. This morning, there's going to be some people standing over here, and I'll be standing over here. They're just ready to pray for you, if that's what you'd like. But if you're one who's like, I still wrestle with this, there only being one way, let's keep talking. Let's pray for each other. Let's journey together in that. Because I know it's not 35 minutes of just one talk that causes anyone to go, no, good. But I do know that the gospel saves. I do know that Jesus being presented is what people enter into faith through the gospel being presented. And so this morning, wherever you're at, can you trust what you're standing on? And for the Christ follower, the answer is yes. 
Jesus, we love you. And I don't know how you do what you do, but you do. You put things and places and people in, in, in certain times so that we might r- cry out to you. And I thank you that it is not blind faith that you ask of us, but you have invited us to believe that you are who you say you are. And I pray that right now in our hearts we would not suppress the truth, but that if it is true, we would long for it more than anything else in the world. We would not let this be a side conversation, something that's on the periphery. We don't need a little bit of old-time religion in our life. We need Jesus. And when Jesus says, come to me, we exchange our lives for his. Dying to self so that he might live through us. Thank you for that. It's in your name we pray.